and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 80, which all sounds very impressive until you compare it to something like the UK radio soap opera The Archers, which has been running since 1950 and has already clocked up more than 19,100 episodes. So we've got a long way to go yet. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been another rain-free week here, and we're all clinging to little bits of good news, like the DIY Superstore reopening this week, and the rumour that McDonald's is about to reopen in some capacity in the UK, although I can't say that I ever really go to either of those, but it still feels positive. More good news is the relaxation of the lockdown in some countries. I hope where you are there are similar good news stories. We'll get to the dairy news in just a little while, but first I'll tell you who our guests are this week. You know, this was almost a Sesame Street kind of podcast brought to you by the letter C. We have four guests on the show this week from Carbios, Choice Lunch and Christian Hansen, which meant I could say this show is brought to you by the letter C. But I can't, because I also have an interview with Friend of the Earth, and our weekly look at the global dairy markets with INTL FC Stone. So that went out of the window. So much for planning. So, our guests are, in no particular order other than the order I remember them in, are Julien Biolet, Director of Business Development and Marketing at Christian Hansen about the company's Probiotics Institute launch in the U.S., Keith Cosby, COO and co-founder of Choice Lunch, also in the US. Martin Stéphane, CEO of Carbios, about its exciting new enzymes for breaking down plastics for recycling. And founder and director of Friend of the Earth, Paolo Bray, about the certification of sustainable dairy products, among other products. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with INTL FC Stone. And this week, it's with Charlie Highland. All right, let's get moving. As far as the week goes, well, they could pretty much rename all of the days to simply day because they all feel the same. Or same day, which is very similar to the French for Saturday, samedi. So we may as well head right into the news from the past seven days that you may have missed. I have to say I've pretty much given up on the regular news bulletins and I'm the kind of person who used to read the news several times a day and get all kinds of alerts on the phone. Of course, with coronavirus, plenty of news in the dairy industry, starting with an online British cheese weekender, which has been set up for next month online to promote artisan cheesemakers. In China, more than 4 million watched a live streaming launch of Goldmax Love Infant Formula, which is quite amazing. Glanbia issued its first quarter results, as did Grupo Lala in Mexico, but I don't think they were streamed live. In Norway, there have been some management changes at Tina. The IDF and ICAR have launched an initiative to improve consistency in milk somatic cell counting. And we also had a story I can relate to, which is that a survey says the Dutch are eating more and putting on a bit of weight and exercising less during the lockdown. I've been working from home for several years now, and yes, it is a struggle because the food is right there in front of your face. Perhaps I should install a vending machine or a coin machine on the fridge and make all of the food really expensive. But I think everyone's in the same boat right now. When this is all over, we'll all shed the excess pounds right away. Of course we will. We also had news on Dean Foods and its deals to sell parts of its business. 
In Europe, the EDA is supporting a European Union move to help out during the crisis, but the EMB isn't too impressed. Amcor research shows dairies at the top of the online grocery shopping list. The Danone Institute North America launched its second grant program. And we've had more stories of companies that are helping out during the pandemic lockdown. We had a story on donkey milk. Vinamilk is exporting sweetened condensed milk to China. There's been a call for the EU to adopt the Nutri-Score system on all food across the Union, and lots more, all of which you can read on DairyReporter.com. Now let's get to our guests. As probiotics and health and immunity continue to be topics of great interest, Christian Hansen has launched a new probiotics information website in the US called the Probiotics Institute. Julien Biolet, Director of Business Development and Marketing at Christian Hansen, told us more. The Probiotic Institute is a resource for learning and discovery regarding the latest research on probiotics. It is accessible to everyone via the address theprobioticinstitute.com. And that website includes the characteristics of Christian Hansen probiotic strains and their specific health benefits, as well as all their related clinical documentation. And that, what was the reason for starting this? So the reason to start that is that as a key player of the probiotic market, Christian Hansen has established the Probiotic Institute to break down misconception and increase understanding of probiotics. And by providing scientifically proven data, easy to access and digestible content, our ambition for the Probiotic Institute is to be a reference resource that food manufacturers, healthcare practitioners, and consumers in the U.S. will visit for knowledge and education on probiotics. And so if a company or an individual is interested in this in the U.S., what do they see when they first get to the website and how do they navigate around there? So we've made the navigation in a way so that it's easy and adapted to different users and different journeys through the site content. And the site uses a mix of different multimedia tools to support the user engagements. So starting from the front page where the video with our head of research would welcome the visitors, would guide them through the importance of bacterial strains in maintaining a balanced microbiome as an introduction. Then the site has a top menu that provides an entrance into focused content pieces on health areas, probiotics, and Christian Hansen strains. And from this phone page, there are also direct links to articles about probiotics, as well as on infant and young children's health and immune health. And throughout the site, articles link to relevant content elsewhere on the site as inspiration and fact boxes that allow to get the main information very quickly. If somebody's interested in some of the things that they find in there, can they? How do they dig deeper? And, and obviously, how equally importantly, how do they get in touch with the company? So to get in touch with the company, of course, social media is uh, an important one. And from the front page, you will get access to Twitter, LinkedIn, and, and Facebook or Instagram links. And uh, that's definitely a way to communicate with us. For any questions about formulating probiotic dairy products, I would always recommend to contact your local Christian Hansen representative too. You're in many different countries, but this has just been launched in the US so far. What was the reasoning for just launching it in the US? So the reason for launching it just in the US is that the US is uh, one of our key markets and that's one of the markets where there's the highest demand on probiotics. 
And we wanted first to focus on this key market to Christian Hansen and for the probiotics to make sure that we were spreading the word about what are these good bacteria uh, able to do on health benefit, making sure that we had the right level of information uh, being carried out to the industry. And this source of information can then be uh, expanded to all the countries if we meet the success that we expect. And as far as the content on there, is it directed specifically at your, your, your customers and potential customers, or would the general public be able to find things of use in there as well? Yeah, definitely. The Probiotic Institute contains information backed by science on probiotics, the human microbiome, and how the two interplay to impact the human health. At launch, the Probiotic Institute contents also includes chapters deep diving into probiotics within infant and immune health. The gut health chapter is soon to follow. And that's basically addressing both healthcare practitioners and at the same time, the general public. And what we mean by general public could be consumers, but also the food industry or even bloggers and journalists. In terms of probiotics, what do you find is the general amount of knowledge about probiotics at the moment, not necessarily with your customers, because if they're customers, then they understand probiotics. But is it something that you're seeing more interest in? So the probiotics have always been of very high interest to consumers, but also for the industry. And uh, as a quick fact that I can share with you, if you Google probiotics, you would get about 59 million hits uh, on Google. So indeed, there's a very high interest in probiotics, but there's also a lot of misconceptions about what is a probiotic. So through this website, the probioticinstitute.com, we really want to make sure that people access the right level of information. And again, information that is being backed by science. So we want this website to be a reference to everyone being interested into probiotics. And do you think that impossible to mention do anything without mentioning coronavirus these days, but do you think that there's an increased interest in probiotics because of the increased interest in health and wellness and immunity right now? Well, certainly there's a lot of questions about immunity, but even before the coronavirus crisis started, there were already a lot of questions about how can we boost the immunity or even a lot of questions about maintaining a healthy gut. So this initiative has actually started pretty long time ago in Christian Hansen. And we believe that the current situation would just make people eager to understand better from the science of what is relevant for them. And will there be capacity for users of the site to leave comments and to feedback on how the site is working for them? We will actually take feedback from these social media channels that we have open, uh, also from uh, our customers through their discussions with our Christian Hansen representatives. And of course, uh, we are all very open to receive feedback from the different communities who want to give us these feedbacks on the probioticinstitute.com. Uh, certainly, uh, people can also reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, for example, uh, where I'm an active member. And how often is it going to be updated? Are you going to be constantly updating new things and tweaking it as you go? Yes, exactly. So the aim is to have this uh, website as a living resource. And as the research and the knowledge of this complex science continues to grow, the Probiotic Institute will be continuously updated with relevant, high quality and timely content. So I would invite everyone to follow the Probiotic Institute on social media, where our team posts new content on a regular basis. And of course, visit the Probiotic Institute since it's providing the most accurate and latest data available. 
And, and how quickly do you are you able to respond to? Uh, we live in an age where people expect an answer immediately. You, when they've got a question, how how quickly are you able to respond to those? Uh, uh, within a few days, we of course uh, will have people taking uh, the lead in answering all the questions, and it would usually take no more than a few days. And I also think it's important that it's very much an information website and not just something that's simply promotional. Exactly. That's that's an educational website. We are not selling anything on this website. So the, the goal of this one is make sure that uh, we set up the right basis of information for everyone interested in probiotics and looking for data that has been backed with high-level clinical data. And as more information becomes available, you'll be able to add to that database and post that online as well? Yeah, for sure. As soon as there will be a new research available, the website will be updated and uh, all the sources will also be added to this content. And I'm sure that you, you probably have people behind the scenes that would know more about it than I would that would be uh, able to analyze the, the data from the number of hits and all of those wonderful things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we will be looking at uh, the different hits and the navigations, what is triggering interest uh, to make sure that, that it is relevant. But also in the way we've designed the websites, we've uh, worked very closely with agencies that were looking at different type of uh, conversations on the social medias, trying to figure out what is the real interest from consumers, but also from the industry. So, so we expect that the content from this website is meeting these needs. We stay in the U.S. to chat with Keith Cosby, COO and co-founder of Choice Lunch, which is a company that provides school meals in California. But wait, there is no school right now. So what does a company that provides school lunches do? Well, rather than give up and wait for who knows how long, Choice Lunch decided to do something different, and that's sell food instead by offering a drive through food collection system that Keith can tell us more about. I guess we should find out first a little bit about the company and what it does or did before the coronavirus issue started. Our company is Choice Lunch. And we've been around for 16 years. Three best friends from college started the business 16 years ago. We grew it to about 300 schools across the state of California, so both Northern and Southern California. We have a fleet of about 50 trucks that deliver to those 300 schools, and we deliver about 25,000 lunches a day up until March 14th. So that was my old job. <laughs> and then it all changed. Yeah. Then uh, I think it was the thir- about the 13th is when, you know, you started to get the individual phone calls from what one school or this, this other school that they were, they were making a decision to close for a week or two. But then, then you started to get your, your more systematic closures where, um, actually, our first systematic one was the Archdiocese of San Francisco. So all the Catholic schools across Marin County, San Francisco County, and San Mateo County, they all work under one organization. And that organization as a whole decided to close. So that took out, I think it was 22 of my schools. And then it was just a waterfall after that. So it was the 13th that we got the first call, but by the 17th, we were completely closed. Not all 300 schools individually or collectively came to a screeching halt. Now, I'm not from California and don't really know the way that things work there. Is the closure of schools down to the individual school or the school board? Or is it 
the state or federal government? How is it decided that the schools will close? If the state were to say that all schools are closed, then essentially that would be the decree, right? But uh, until you get to that point, decision decisions are more individual or regional. So it was starting individual, but then eventually we would get entire counties that were saying, okay, all schools are closed. So whether the school wanted to or not, they were part of that county regional closure. But at the very, very beginning, it was an individual school or it was uh, maybe a group of five schools that worked together uh, that were making these smaller decisions for their individual communities. And how big an area do you generally cover? So we have Northern California. Um, we deal with, I think, about eight counties in Northern California. And then in Southern California, we're in L.A., San Diego, Ventura County, Orange County. So across the state, probably 12 or 13 counties combined. And some of those are pretty big ones if you're mentioning San Diego and L.A. Yeah, L.A. is, from a geography standpoint, a, a vast county. San Francisco is eight square miles, but a lot of density, uh, but obviously nowhere near the sheer geography that we cover in Southern California. Okay, so you deliver school lunches, and then all of a sudden there are no schools. What was the decision-making process as that was happening? Yeah, so the first thing is essentially ceasing the operation. And by that, I mean doing every we, everything we can to stop the flow of products coming in, you know, raw ingredients, because I know I'm not going to be able to use them and I don't want to bring in a bunch of raw chicken and then have to throw it out or, you know, or something like that. So stopping as much product coming in, making the extremely difficult situation of laying off over 160 of my employees, which was very painful. I mean, I've not, in 16 years, I've never had to do anything like that. Even in, in the 2008, 2009, 2010 recession, we didn't have to do anything like that. So that was very painful. And just knowing that it was before all the government programs were coming out. So you didn't know yet what legislation would come to help um, these people that have been delivering lunches to schools and children. And my own children uh, are at one of my schools. So that was a very tough week. But then we started thinking, once everything kind of the dust settled, we started to think, well, now what can we do? Like, what is a need out there? in the market that we could use some of our resources to try to create a niche or to fill a gap. And so how did you then transform from delivering school meals to setting up a drive-through food service? So twofold. One, and I don't know if you know this, but in Southern California, we actually got a phone call from the Orange County Emergency Task Force that's putting together a lot of infrastructure. We worked a contract with them where we're now taking care of three um, homeless shelters that have been kind of built up overnight. And we're feeding about 600 homeless breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. So that alone was a little different for us because, you know, typically we're a, a school lunch company. We operate five days. We don't do breakfasts. We don't do dinners. But we, within a couple of days, put together a menu and we even have breakfast for lunch on our, our school lunch menu, so we're able to use some of those items for breakfast. Uh, but now we're taking care of 600 people seven days a week that otherwise wouldn't have access to food and would also be on the streets in unsafe capacity with this 
um, pandemic out there. And then in Northern California, an opportunity like that didn't quite materialize for us where you got, you know, you got that phone call and you were able to react to it. So in Northern California, we put together what we're calling the Choice Lunch Pantry. Normally our, our school lunch company is Choice Lunch. Uh, we're calling this the Choice Lunch Pantry. And we have three things that we really put together. One is we had staff that wanted to work. So we laid them off, but we knew that if they were given the opportunity, they would gladly do what they could to get back to work and, and do something. The second thing is, as I was personally going into the grocery stores, you know, back in February when, when this was first starting, I'd be in Costco or, or somewhere like that. And you'd see that people were almost embarrassed as they were stocking up in end of February. But in mid-March, the eyes were different, that they were nervous. As people were navigating the aisles and you could see the grocery store aisle dance um, as you try to maneuver past somebody and, and you saw some people that honestly shouldn't even be there. You know, if it's um, some elderly trying to navigate to get just their basic needs met and you could tell they didn't, they weren't comfortable being in that environment. They were unsure of their surroundings and um, I just, I could tell not everyone wanted to be in grocery stores, but you still needed to get groceries. And then the third thing is while the grocery store, when I was personally in the stores and I was trying to buy some eggs or I was trying to buy milk or even chicken when I went to Costco, um, in mid-March, the entire cooler was void of all chicken products. No breasts, no thighs, no nothing. So I was thinking, you know, all these, so, well, a good amount of these staples, pastas, are they're, they're not on the shelves anymore. And in the school lunch world, I know that the food service supply chain is completely different from the grocery retail chain. And a, a perfect example is eggs. <clears throat> so while the grocery stores were void of eggs on a daily basis. You had to be there when they opened within the first half hour or hour to get eggs. Choice Lunch buys eggs by the 180. And there's no quick, easy way for the supply chain to take that normal box of, you know, six flats of 30 eggs, total count of 180, and then go sell that to your, to your grocer and your grocer break it down and sell it in a retail format. Like there's no easy way for them to, to quickly do that. And in the food service world, where those eggs were going, places like us, school lunch companies or hotels or restaurants or catering companies, they're all closed. So while grocery was in undersupply, the food service supply chain was in a, a massive oversupply. And so we, we married those three things together. People were nervous to go to the store. Food service was in an oversupply of staples. And I had people who needed to get back to work. So we just put those three things together to create the Choice Lunch Pantry. And so how do you then get that produce to the consumers? So what we did is that in the Choice Lunch Pantry, what happens is folks will go to our website. And they it's pantry.choicelunch.com. And they will pick some of these staples. So you could order eggs by the two and a half dozen. You can order um, two gallons of milk. 
Uh, we also paired up with a bakery that is located in San Jose that traditionally only uh, supplies white tablecloth restaurants. So they were almost down to no business. We joined up with them and the folks buy these products direct from our website two days ahead of time. And we, in our parking lot, which normally used to be for our employees to come and, and park as they came to our headquarters, we now have construction cones and tables and, and different lanes where you pull up and you just put your name on, on your dashboard. So we can look through your windshield, we see your name, we go into our kitchen, we pull all your grocery staples, pop your trunk, we put the groceries right into your trunk, and you drive away with a smile on your face. Nice, quick, and easy. And are you just doing that in the one location? So we started it on March 21st at our Danville headquarters, and I happen to be sitting there right now looking out at the lot. We're opening up in about one hour. We should see cars lining up. Uh, but it was going so well that we opened it in our Hayward uh, location in, in the East Bay, close to Oakland, our San Jose location in the South Bay here in the Bay Area. And we also worked with, uh, we have a community out here called Rossmore. It's about 9,055 and older community, but they didn't have quick, easy access to groceries. So we have a mobile truck. One of our, one of our school lunch delivery trucks is now going out there uh, twice a week. And then we also opened a fifth location in Lafayette. It's another suburb of San Francisco, Oakland, out in the East Bay. So we're, we're taking care, I think yesterday, almost over 400 cars across the five locations. It must be great for companies that maybe couldn't get their products to the consumers anymore to be able to reach out to consumers through you. Exactly. Um, we, we added half and half to our menu because, you know, people are clamoring. They, they, they had plenty of ways to get coffee, but no easy way to get half and half. Um, we have uh, three types of milks. We're doing whole 2% and um, fat-free. Obviously, our eggs are, are flying off the shelf. That's our second most purchased item after produce is the eggs. Uh, yeah, like you said, there was no real way to get the food service supply redeployed. So we were able to tap into those resources that we already had and, and those relationships we already had. We already had accounts with these people. We just kept ordering more of what we normally order, and then uh, we were able to get it into the hands of the general public. I know that we're sort of putting the cart before the horse in a little way um, by predicting when this is all going to be over, but do you think that this is going to change the way that people buy things? Do you envisage what you're doing now has, has a future in terms of you being able to continue doing this kind of thing? You know, we started to do it just because we knew it was a need. But early on, some of our clients were asking us, hey, when this stops, are you guys going to keep doing this? Because this is pretty awesome. And if you think about uh, my own wife, for example, I have three children, six, four, and two. Trying to go into the grocery store, forget about the coronavirus, but her going into the grocery store with the three of them is kind of a fiasco. But if she can order her groceries online and just pull through our lot even after this is over and we just pop her trunk and put the groceries in the car, it's pretty incredible and a, just a much more relaxing experience. So folks have been asking us, we'd like it if you could keep doing this when this is all done. And I, to what you said, Jim, are people going to change their behaviors? The other thing that I say is 
you know, we're all doing more Zoom calls with our families. Like, for example, uh, um, my family does a Zoom call every week because they're all over the United States, and now we're seeing each other. Well, who's going to be the one that stops those calls when this is all over? I think our behaviors are going to change. And I think how we procure grocery is going to be one of those changes. And it won't be for everybody. But I think some of these are, are will be long-lasting changes. And, and these behaviors will change long-term. Of course, you'll still need to feed schools as well at lunchtimes once they get back in as well. Exactly. So w one of the things we're even talking about is maybe – we do um, school lunch Monday to Friday, but we do our drive-through grocery Saturday and Sunday. And and normally our, our buildings are dormant on Saturdays and Sundays and the weekends, but this is a way to, to get more people to work and, and do something with our buildings when we're normally not using them. Consumers today are being met with a lot of different labels, certifying GMO-free, vegan, plant-based, sugar-free, lactose-free, farm-certified, and many more. The variation isn't just between countries, sometimes it's within a country. One organization that's looking to change things is Milan-based Friend of the Earth, which wants to see third-party certification that's independent, international, and multi-product in scope, so that it's widely acceptable and easy to be understood by consumers. To tell us more about the organization and the plan is the organization's founder and director, Paolo Bray. I come from uh, 30 years' experience on uh, certifying products with lower impact on the environment. I actually I started from the sea. So uh, 30 years ago, I started working with this program, which is called the Dolphin Safe Tuna Program, uh, which uh, certifies tuna coat without harming dolphins. It was started by an NGO based in Berkeley, California. And at that time, there was no use of the word uh, sustainability. These campaigns were focused on iconic animals like whales, you know, Greenpeace, dolphins. And then uh, what we saw is that by certifying products, in this case, tuna, uh, as being lower impact in terms of its production, we could actually achieve important conservation results. Indeed, we managed to lower dolphin mortality by millions of dolphins, about uh, 100,000 every year. And in the, in the area where this uh, killing was occurring due to the, to the tuna industry. And, uh, and so in 2008, I decided to launch Friend of the Sea, which is a major certification program of products from sustainable fisheries and aquaculture. And uh, currently over 1,000 companies from 70 countries have Friend of the Sea certified products, including some major retail chains. For, for example, Friend of the Sea is on the omega-3 supplements of uh, the major U.S. retailer. And um, in uh, several countries, as I said, and the audits are carried out by independent certification bodies. We are actually recognized by the national accreditation bodies, those which in the UK, for example, would be UCAS, and in other countries they have different names. So this is a further reassurance for uh, consumers of the reliability of the certification. And uh, in 2016-17, we decided to launch a parallel project to Friend of the Sea, which is Friend of the Earth, which certifies products from sustainable agriculture and farming. So you might wonder why another certification in this field. Well, what happened is we looked at the 
supermarket shelves and we realized that uh, uh, seafood was only maybe 5% of the total of the products and most of the other food products were agro-products, products from agriculture and farming. And we looked uh, more in detail, if we look more in detail at who is certifying the impact on the environment of these products and maybe the social impact, well, we see that uh, the only internationally renowned certification and accepted certification is organic, which, uh, however, has remained quite a niche certification. It has grown from uh, about zero to the current uh, level uh, in, from the 80s to year 2000. And then it started to decline and bounce back, etc. But overall, uh, globally, it represents only 2% of the total production. Of course, in certain areas like Europe, it's a higher percentage. But globally, uh, for example, in Africa, there's almost no organic certified products. So we thought, uh, how can uh, we expand, you know, and provide uh, consumers with uh, a clear message of those products which are produced in a sustainable way, both in terms of their impact on the environment and uh, on the workers' social accountability. And uh, again, uh, there are some certifications out there which uh, certify sustainability, but what happens is that most of them are either local or monoproduct. This means, uh, for example, uh, sustainable wine, just to give you some examples, sustainable wine from California. It's focused only on wine and it's uh, certifying only producers in California. Uh, sustainable milk from Ireland, the same issue, mono product and local. So as for our experience with Friend of the Sea and certification of seafood, we know very well that uh, local or national certifications don't really spread globally. And also we know that consumers need a, a label which can uh, allow them to have a quick understanding of the origin and sustainability of the product. They cannot uh, try and, and decipher and uh, understand different labels for different products. That's why we launched Friend of the Earth, which is the only certification for sustainability, which is both international in scope and multi-product. So over these uh, couple of years, a lot of uh, audits have been carried out. And currently there are about uh, 30 companies. This is much less than Friend of the Sea, but uh, we see a, a dramatic increase in this uh, past and recent uh, months. Um, so as I was saying, 30 uh, certified products in nine countries. Uh, and these countries are spread through all the continents from South America to North America, Europe, Asia and Africa. Uh, and 13 different product types. So uh, cattle, cow meat, uh, chicken, dairy products, eggs, feed. We certify the first uh, uh, fish meal producer from uh, insect farming in France, uh, rice, quinoa, coffee, wine, oil, fruit, until now only apricots. And uh, among the dairy products, uh, we certified uh, milk, cheese, parmesan, yogurt in Italy, South Africa, and Sri Lanka. The goal is to sort of expand that so that it's like a, a unified thing instead of being little bits and pieces all over the place? Well, uh, actually, this is uh, what we believe is our strength. Uh, 
we believe that uh, consumer uh, going to a supermarket uh, needs to have uh, one certification of sustainability for uh, the different products, whether they are salads or fruit, dairy products or meat, eggs. Of course, the requirements behind each certification are, are different and you can find them on our website. The audits are carried out by independent certification bodies and they include the uh, criteria such as uh, the safeguarding of the ecosystem. So we make sure uh, through the requirements and through the independent audit that there's no impact on, uh, on uh, critical habitats such as mangroves, wetlands, tropical forests. Then we have requirements related to the protection of wild fauna and flora, which is occurring on the agricultural site. So we request a census of the endangered of the species occurring on the site, um, of the endangered species, mitigation and conservation plans, uh, maintenance of biodiversity corridors like uh, trees, rows. And then we have requirements related to the protection of soil and water resources, the prohibition of use of dangerous and uh, highly toxic substances. And in terms of the agricultural management system, the requirements are very similar to integrated pest management. And then we have uh, waste and water energy and energy management uh, requirements. And as I was saying, social responsibility, which is becoming a major issue is in agricultural production as well as uh, production of uh, products which use agricultural feed, uh, such as dairy products, meat, chicken, and so on. To give you an idea, in Europe alone, about 31% of the total agricultural production comes from irregular work. And so uh, this is what happens in Europe. Imagine uh, uh, what, uh, sorry, the 31% is for Italy, 25% is the average in Europe. Imagine uh, what happens in uh, countries outside Europe. So this is a major issue that has to be tackled, social responsibility. It must become a must for all products, not, uh, let's say, a niche certification for, for only some uh, fair products. Another important point that I would like to highlight is the difference between uh, uh, sustainability certification and organic. There's more and more studies coming out, scientific and reliable and peer-reviewed studies, which confirm that um, at least for some crops, uh, conventional and in particular integrated pest management uh, agricultural systems are even better performing in terms of their environmental performance, in terms of their lower impact on the environment. Why is this? Because organic, even though it's a great first step that companies could undertake, it focuses mainly on the use or not use of uh, certain pesticides, herbicides, and their potential impact on the soil and water. But in doing so, and forgetting about all the other potential impacts of agricultural production, it uh, does not uh, take into consideration, for example, land use per unit of production, energy use, water use, waste generation for unit of production which are normally worse performing in organic production because it's less efficient than, for example, uh, conventional or integrated pest management or high-precision agriculture or even uh, hydroponics and aquaponics. So 
this is why we need uh, sustainability certification. We need to check one by one each company in order to provide consumers with a, with a clear message about the fact that the given product is produced respecting the environment and workers. How do you reach all of these companies and get them involved? Well, this is very often uh, the most difficult task. We have uh, experience uh, uh, with uh, Friend of the Sea, with the Dolphin Safe project. Uh, when you talk about uh, iconic uh, animals like dolphins, normally you get very easily media coverage. When you start, because everybody is very sensible and aware about these uh, species, when you start talking about certification, people kind of start yawning and it's much more difficult to get the message uh, through to the at least the mass media. However, we, we did that gradually. We have been out uh, on several media, including uh, BBC, CNBC, On Time, etc. But uh, we also realized that uh, the media are also very much interested about uh, conservation activities. And that's why we have, um, in more recent years, de dedicated also, as it's part of our mission, more and more of our resources to support and develop uh, conservation projects and campaigns. This is also what differentiates us from other certifications. We are really an NGO and uh, we, we develop, uh, as I was saying, conservation projects and campaigns. And for example, recently I've been interviewed a month ago on BBC Radio about our campaign to uh, stop the illegal trade of uh, pangolins. But we also have on-site uh, projects uh, to reintroduce endangered butterflies, endangered snails. There are several endangered snails also in Europe. So we have ex situ reproduction activities and then uh, reintroduce them in controlled environment. And this normally generates more media coverage. But yes, it's never enough. And we do attend the major trade shows and uh, we do organize continuously webinars, which are attended by hundreds, uh, if not thousands by now, of uh, companies and media. But yes, the, the work is not finished. There's uh, still a lot of space for improvement. And what's the reaction been like from companies? We can see there's a tendency from uh, at least uh, all the major uh, players in the agro business, in the agricultural production and food production, Uh, to highlight their engagement uh, for sustainability. The problem is that uh, a lot of these is uh, self-claims, which is like the first step toward serious uh, sustainability. Uh, there's a need uh, for all these producers, the big and the small ones, to accept, you know, to open up their doors to independent uh, third-party audits. Uh, continuously carried out over the years with surveillances and with the transparency in terms of the audit results so that also stakeholders can intervene. Uh, for example, if a producer is claiming that it's uh, producing sustainably, not uh, de de devastating the tropical forest, for example, or other critical habitats, The whole report has to be published on uh, the website and, and open to stakeholders. The auditors has to consult stakeholders to see if these claims are true. 
Okay, and this is what happens, for example, with our friend of the sea audits until now, because that's also requested by the FAO guidelines for this certification. And we, uh, the auditor has to uh, contact uh, potential stakeholders before the audit is carried out, inform them about the audit, and they have the chance to object, to provide their inputs, et cetera, et cetera. So we are planning to do that more and more. There's already a stakeholder involvement in the Friend of the Earth certification. The audits are not yet published uh, online, but, but at least there is a stakeholder involvement. Uh, so this is the difference between uh, the generic uh, claims and an actual verification by third party, which can make the certification reliable for consumers. So, but we feel that the change is occurring, is happening, and that companies are more and more into this uh, state of mind because consumers in the end, through internet and in particular after COVID, will want to know more and more what's the story behind the product and whether the company is impacting the environment or protecting it and how it is treating its workers and the workers of its suppliers. So this is a trend which cannot be stopped. And in the end, uh, it's very clear that sustainability is becoming a must. So consumers by default expect a product to be sustainable to the environment, to workers. And they get very surprised and annoyed if it's not when they discover it's not the case. So it's important for companies to, to verify this in advance. A subject that I found both fascinating and exciting recently was the news that a company in France, Carbios, has developed an enzyme that breaks down plastic, which can then be used to make more plastic. It sounds great from an economic point of view, but also environmentally. And rather than me talk about it, it's best to hear it from the top. And so to tell us more about Carbios and the new developments is the company's CEO, Martin Stéphane. Yes, sure. So the company was launched in 2011 by a VC uh, fund called uh, Social Capital, based in Paris, who had identified um, a patent filed by uh, CNRS, which is the National Center for Scientific Research in France. It's a public body. And this uh, patent was not really uh, exploited, let's say, or used. And they wanted to, uh, to have a, an exclusive license on this patent. And they create, uh, starting from that, a company called Carbios. And they asked uh, our general manager, who is Jean-Claude Lumaret, still our general manager, to develop ideas and new technologies, uh, starting from this patent, but also from uh, additional ideas. What Jean-Claude did, basically, he had the idea to uh, use biology to develop solutions for the end of life of plastics. And that's really uh, our mission to do that. We are the first and only company to have brought together two sciences, enzymology on one side, which is the science of enzymes, and plastics on the other side, to develop technologies for the end of life of plastics. Uh, the company was IPO'd in 2013 to be able to fund a very ambitious collaborative R&D program, which was funded uh, approximately 50% by Carbios. 50% by French uh, public grants and subsidies. And out of this program, which lasted five years, 
came out two technologies. The first one is a technology which enables PLA, which is polylactic acid, to be fully biodegradable in any condition, in any natural condition, meaning in a home compost, for example, no need of an industrial composter to decompose the PLA. So we bring an additional feature to this bioplastic, which is PLA. Uh, this technology is brought to the market by a JV called Carbiolis, where uh, we have partnered with BPI France, uh, bringing uh, financing, and Limagrin Ingredient, bringing their uh, bioplastic business. So Carbiolis was created in 2016 to bring that technology to the market. So Carbiolis is Carbios exclusive licensee for the PLA technology. The second technology is the biorecycling of PET. And this technology is brought to the market directly by Carbios and was the, uh, the, uh, the subject of the Nature article. And for that technology, we have uh, very prestigious partners like uh, together with L'Oréal, the cosmetic company, we launched last year a consortium of brand owners with Nestle Waters, PepsiCo, and Suntory Beverage and Food, which is Lucozade in, in the UK. And those uh, brand owners want to have uh, our technology on the market. Uh, the sooner the better, because they have committed to use more and more recycling material in their packaging. And we all know that the existing technologies will not enable the brand owners, but also the governments to reach their sustainability goals. So there is a need of additional technologies in addition to uh, the traditional mechanical recycling of PET to bring additional quantities at better quality of recycled PET to the market. Uh, we are based in Clermont-Ferrand. We work a lot with the Toulouse University under contract. They are our main partner for upstream R&D. Uh, we use their very expensive equipment, their knowledge, their expertise to do enzyme engineering under our leadership, especially under our CSO leadership. And we have in Clermont-Ferrand laboratory, offices, and a pilot plant. And we will build, we will start building this year a demonstration plant in Lyon, south of Lyon, to demonstrate, not really to produce, but to demonstrate that our process is scalable at large industrial scale. And by large industrial scale, I mean up to 150,000 tons per year. So that's the goal for the first industrial plant. I'm not saying that that would be the size of the first industrial plant, but at least we want to demonstrate initially that we could license up to 150,000 tons of PET production for the first plant. In terms of timing, we aim to be able to license our process by 2022 so that our first licensee will start his own plant by the end of 2024, beginning of 2025. So that will be the first industrial scale plant up and running, starting end of 2024, beginning of 2025. And obviously, there are two aspects to this. Firstly, there's the breakdown of the materials with the enzyme, and then you have to be able to use what you've broken down to be able to create new products. So will one facility do all of 
that, or will it be two separate components? Very good question. Huh? To take advantage of the existing infrastructure, our concept is a plug-and-play concept. So we will plug a CardBios unit onto an existing product, PET production line. But we have no intention to reinvent the way to polymerize a PET. We just want to plug a CardBios unit and to inject our monomers directly into the PET plant so that the PET producer will continue to do his job, which is to make PET, but instead of using raw material coming from petrochemicals, he will, he will have the possibility to use, in addition, raw materials coming from waste. So that's really the concept. And will there be a time when the entire process can be run from waste? If the availability of waste is sufficient, because if you look at today, the, uh, the efficient side of the of a PET plant would say it's uh, something like uh, the largest plant being built today in the U.S. is an 800,000 tons plant of PET. I don't know if they have two or three lines. So it's huge plants because they have a lot of experience, the PET industry. They have at least 40 years of experience, if not more. And they have hundreds of million tons of experience. So before being able to match this experience and to match those efficiency, maybe we need some time. But conceptually, as soon as the availability of waste is sufficient, we could very well imagine a plant uh, operating the Cambios unit not using any petrochemicals. Conceptually, yes, it's, it's very possible. And, and so the only limiting factor then would be the ability to collect enough plastic waste to feed the system. Yeah, and that's the key today, to make this circular economy a success, put it in motion. And that's the goal of a lot of people, including, of course, our partners, brand-owner partners, but also European Union, also various governments. We need more collection. We need to increase the collection rate of plastic waste. It's sufficient today. Let me give you an example. The opaque bottle, the milk bottle, which are very popular right now, high content of TiO2, it's barely collected and it's not uh, really recycled huh, because uh, it's difficult to recycle huh, with the traditional uh, processes. Food trays, they are in PT, amorphous PT. One million tons of food trays are put on the market every year in Europe. Collection rate close to zero because there is no technology to recycle that efficiently. With our technology, we can recycle any type of PET waste, whereas transparent bottle, colored bottle, opaque bottle, amorphous PET, crystalline PET, even textile, into any kind of PET object. Since we go back to monomers, we purify the monomers and we re-inject the monomers into a polymerization plant. So it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a virtuous infinite recycle. Conceptually, it's an infinite recycle. Of course, you have some leaks here and there, so uh, I, I doubt that uh, in reality it's 100% uh, uh, infinite recycling, but conceptually, yes. It seems like it's a wonderful thing environmentally uh, in terms of the amount of plastic that's out there and everybody's trying to reduce plastic and, and to recycle plastic. I guess there would be sort of two streams of plastic. There would be, there would be the household waste 
that we an industrial waste that we are able to siphon off into this but then there's also the amount of plastic that's just lying around globally in oceans and in in the environment is how do we get that into the system as well because that's obviously a little more difficult to do well it's a collection issue so uh, of course what we say is that by bringing our technologies to the market we will contribute to reducing plastics pollution because we give value to wastes which today have low or no value so instead of ending up in the environment they will end up in a in a plant operating the cambios process so we really contribute to reducing the plastics pollution and you know what is not acceptable is those nine million tons of plastic ending up in the, in the ocean every year. So it must be we must stop that huh? because uh, it's just not acceptable anymore. And I think the society, the consumers, the citizens, the governments, they are realizing that we need to stop that. But we cannot, and we will not stop uh, the usage of plastics because plastic they bring a lot to the society. What is, what is the issue is not plastics. Uh, the issue is plastic waste, as you said. Uh, so we need to turn off the tap of plastics pollution. I think it is more important than trying to collect those unfortunate waste plastic which has ended up in the environment. It's possible, uh, but it will cost a fortune probably. In terms of the, the companies that will, once this is in an industrial scale, will it be comparable price-wise? Well, that's the goal. I'm not saying that will be the case uh, as of day one. Because as I said, the PET industry, they have, uh, you know, 40 years, 50 years of experience and hundreds of millions tons of experience. So they have super optimized their process. We are not there yet, but we are not, we are a bit more expensive than Virgin PET, but uh, we are not 10 times more expensive by far. And today, if you look at the price, of recycled PT with mechanical technologies, mechanical process, it's at least 400 euro tons above virgin PT. Why that? Because there is huge demand for recycled PT and there is no supply, not enough supply. So I'm convinced that um, the price of recycled PT will remain above virgin PT for several years until the sales to capacity ratio of this industry will find an equilibrium. But it's not the case. Today, uh, the best estimate I've seen uh, are for uh, 3 million tons shortage, supply shortage by 2023 in recycled PET. So the market needs badly new technologies to increase volumes, huh? but they will have to pay at the beginning, yeah? to pay, you know, not a premium, it's market price, huh? because uh, demand is high, supply is not there, so uh, price goes up. Huh? Clearly something that's of great importance when you have the support of so many large companies that want to invest and want to participate in the project. It helps. It helps a lot uh, because they bring, of course, expertise, which we don't have, like technical expertise in uh, you know, plastics converting, for example. But they bring also expertise in communication. And then they bring their influence, huh? which is very important to us because we are only carnivores. So even if we are extremely ambitious, when we go and discuss with the European Union, for example, with the Commission, 
it's better to have uh, at your shoulders uh, you know big names like Laurel and PepsiCo and Nestle workers huh, because you gain a lot of credibility and we also gain credibility with our other partners huh, like uh, our enzyme partner Novozymes the world leader in enzyme uh, the enzyme industry uh, they agreed to develop um, uh, to scale up the production of our proprietary enzyme And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from INCL FC Stone. Hi Jim. Um, well, some more positive signs in the dairy market this week. Um, we've just seen the release of the spot market quotations out for uh, Germany, Netherlands and France. And on average, they're, they're all up for, for most of the, the products, particularly butter, skim and whey, all up about 1.5% on average. Um, and that's the second week of, of positive numbers, which which is very welcome because we've had um, obviously several weeks of, uh, of very large drops. So so really good to see some signs of stability. Um, obviously a little bit early to confirm if we've seen a bottom or not in the markets, but but certainly positive signs nonetheless. And we've seen similar positivity in the futures markets also. Um, on average, prices are moving up a little bit, mostly being dragged up by increased buying out later on as in from quarter four of this year and into 2021 and the buyers there have been willing to pay a bit of a premium i I think largely due to the fact that they're looking at um the fact that we're at reasonably low historic levels there's likely going to be a supply response um, from a lot of farmers due to the low milk prices which are, are here and coming and um, you know, expectation that we could see the balance tables get tighter towards the end of the year. So that that increased buying out later in the year has also now brought stability in the nearer months, um, especially with this week's launch of the private storage aid, uh, and you know, increased ability for people to at least buy the short-term uh, product uh, at reasonably depressed prices put it into storage and claim the storage aid to uh, to reduce some of their storage costs. So that enables them to offer to sell forward, basically. Um, and with the premiums that are out in the forward months, it, it, it provides a, a good trading opportunity for, for many, a processor and, uh, and trader. So that's, again, all helping to provide some stability here. Still a lot of moving parts, um, you know, still trying to really estimate the... Uh, the demand implications uh, weighing up the stronger retail demand against the um, well the, the the major hits that we've seen in food service. So so we're continuing to grapple with those. Um, milk supply is still looking reasonably good, but the expectation is as milk prices start to move down over the coming months, that should start to have a, an impact on reducing some of the milk output towards the end of the year. Um, but we have to wait and see with that. Um, so in general, signs of positivity this week. Uh, we'll see if the coming weeks uh, can sustain that. Thanks, Charlie. We'll talk to you again next week as we head into May. I was going to suggest that maybe all the months should have the same name, but at least with months, the weather changes. Well, in most places it does. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. 
And that's just about it for another week. We already have some interviews planned for the next podcast. One's a definite, because I'm doing that in a couple of hours. Not a great deal else to say that doesn't relate to the current situation, so I'll leave it there and hope you're managing okay, whether you're an essential worker, working from home, or waiting to be called back to work. Definitely strange and stressful times for all of us, but hopefully you're coping okay, that you enjoyed this week's podcast, and that you'll join us again a week from now. So until then, as we head into May, take care of yourself and others, and thanks for listening.